I have not had any kind of sexual, physical, romantic relationship ever in my 37 years of life. Could I be a sexual being who has never had actual sex with somebody? I am a sexual being, though. Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram, nonviolent communication, and resonant healing with personal stories from individuals living real human lives. My name is Karen Nance, self-pres, social, sexual blind, three-wing two, with 371 trifix, and ENTP cognitive preferences. I hope you enjoy these stories. Hello, friends. Welcome back. Uh, we are here today with Maggie Oberman, who uh, works for a nonprofit, Spark the Change, who I also met in our Shift Enneagram class. And I'm really excited because this is our first point two that we have coming on to be interviewed. And Maggie identifies as a two with a one wing, and she is currently identifying as social, sexual, self-pres blind in terms of her instinctual stack. So I am going to go ahead and let Maggie share with us a little bit about her journey, um, what she thinks has most impacted her to becoming the person that she is. And for listeners, Maggie, would you mind just sharing um, your age, sort of where you hail from, uh, what's alive for you, and where do you work, what's your role, just so that we can get a little bit of a sense and color for who you are now, and then kind of taking us back through your history and what's been meaningful to getting you to this version of Maggie that we're talking to today. Yes, thanks so much, Kara. I'm so thrilled to be here today and to be the two guinea pig for the podcast. <laughs> so um, I appreciate this opportunity. Um, yes, so I am 37 years old um, as of August, and I hail from Colorado, northern Colorado. I'm currently in Fort Collins. And I work for um, a wonderful nonprofit that's called Spark the Change Colorado. And I am an RSVP coordinator. So basically, I'm RSVP as an AmeriCorps program, um, retired and senior volunteer program. And I get um, individuals 55 and older um, out in volunteering opportunities in the community. That's amazing. Um, Is it um, uh, AmeriCorps? When I think of that, I think of like education, like or, or Teach for America or something like that. Is it related or is it helping in ways other than teaching? Sure. America, um, uh, Teach for America is a separate program, but AmeriCorps okay. has its own um, multiple different programs. I was an AmeriCorps VISTA um, back in the day. And um, so this is a senior, AmeriCorps seniors program. There's a couple different programs. Um, and and so it's just a program. I, I really focus on the full mission of Spark the Change, which is really um, to increase volunteerism across the state. We work all over the state. So um, yeah. What kind of ways do these seniors volunteer? Like what's the, give us just a few of the things these seniors do. Is it any or everything? 
The volunteer, say it one more time. Yeah, those seniors that are volunteering. Okay. Yeah, like what kind of, like give me just the gamut. Like they might be volunteering in this capacity to that sure. capacity or like what kind of things are they doing? Yeah, well, I think that's the thing. Senior individuals have so many capacities. There's so much through their life experience and through the skills that they have. So, um, and uh, my particular grant, our, our grant is focused on food insecurity. Mm. So basically I'm matching them with organizations and the Broomfield community of Colorado, north of Denver, um, with organizations that do have some some mission towards um, food alleviation, food insecurity um, alleviation. So, are you guys um, building community gardens? Is that a piece of that? It could be yeah. a community garden. It could be um, a, f- a feeding program for people who are unhoused or who need um, some care. There could be a single mothers program where they have meals for the the families um, to give the mothers a break. Or oh. there's a lot, of, uh, all different kinds of. <laughs> That's amazing because I I'm an obesity medicine doctor, so I'm talking to people about nutrition all the time, mm-hmm. and so often I'm realizing that people are feeding themselves in not the greatest ways because to eat healthy actually costs money and it can be way cheaper to eat a bunch of empty caloric processed, what I will dare to say are not actually real foods. And then we wonder why, you know, there's so much disparity in healthcare outcomes based on socioeconomic class. For sure. And that's why you can't like isolate one of these issues. Um, so uh, I feel like my RSVP program is a little bit narrowed to that focus. But then with Spark the Change, we can be creative and think about all the ways that we can work with volunteers and community. So yeah, and I'm really just naming this is your social instinct coming through. Like, I mean, this is <laughs> yeah. like social instinctual type work. And when I think of a social two, I also think of a two that's pretty career focused. Do you feel like your career is really important to you? And have you been um, investing in like your uh, development? I mean, most social twos can sometimes even be mistaken as threes because they're very ambitious. Do you identify with that? So I, I feel a lot of my one wing a lot. And so I have a very strong one wing. And so um, I think I have an idealism and kind of a, a set of standards for myself and kind of things that are important to me. And where I get caught up is some of the baggage, I would say, from a lot of the type three um, energy that I had when I was younger. It was a much more about achieving and kind of did have more of a um, self-competition and trying to get, um, always show that I could do the best work and um, get these goals accomplished. And um, I think as I've grown, I feel like I can see more where I get in trouble with that, how it keeps me from looking at what now I feel like is more like a look at my vocation. Mm. Um, I'm much more about um, seeking a vocation for myself now. And it's when I get kind of caught up in career and thinking, um, I, I have a really hard time with job interviews because mm. I just get very, very um, anxiety with, <laughs> with um, job interviews, which is strange because I love talking to people. And it seems like that's just an opportunity to talk to somebody. But and for some reason, I get really caught up into the 
um, those expectations and am I saying things right and is this person perceiving me the way that it needs to be and when that starts to seep into how I'm looking at career that's when I get into trouble so I actually think I've, I'm kind of learning how to step back and to not put all my eggs in the basket of the career but to look at the bigger picture like I might have this job for right now and I'll take it kind of for what it is but it's not my whole life and as long as I'm moving towards a vocation where I can use my skills and my passion for for working with people and for social justice then I'm on the right track and I don't have to worry so much about the job and yeah how I do at the job and yeah. <laughs> I can trust in the larger picture of the vocation. That's amazing. Yeah. I think that you're commenting about this anxiety, which I think we see inside of both point three and point one for different reasons. I think that I remember that I used to get panic attacks when I was in medical school and I would have to present at grand rounds or in front of attendings or more senior fellows or residents that I was really wanting to impress. And I just didn't feel as confident in the knowledge base. I really wasn't grounded. Like so much of the information was up in my head. And as soon as the anxiety took my heart center offline and there were all of these dysregulated emotions, I was just, you know, off to the races in terms of my anxiety. And in working with point ones, I find that sometimes their anxiety gets unleashed when the level of work is not living up to the level of integrity that they really want to see. So since we know that H Enneagram type is actually sort of a merging of the two wings, but we tend to kind of lean on one more than the other. That's really interesting because I don't think of twos as particularly anxious, although I think they have all of these heart-centered issues around abandonment and attachment and the things that I think all of us as two, threes, and fours are a little bit more sensitive to. But as I'm sitting here and talking to you, I can also see how the anxieties of the one and the three could play into the two experiencing anxiety as well. Yeah, so I think that um, for sure as a two, I actually, and just for myself, not as a two necessarily, but just as myself, I don't necessarily um, feel like I'm an anxiety-ridden person. I'm, I don't have a lot of high anxiety, so what you're saying, I feel um, yeah, kind of a level of confidence with most things, And um, but the, the one, yes, the one striving for this ideal and striving for alignment and for the things that I see that I want the world to be and I want for myself to be in that world. Um, sometimes when that isn't coming out, out that way, then yes, there's a little anxiety or frustration actually really. Um, and then with the three, it was more for, I saw more of the, that three aspect when I was um, in school. I was a high achiever in school and it was a role for myself and I really, really pushed myself in that academic area and um and it is the area when I go into job searching and talk about career that I feel a lot of that come up um it's again it's like there's these expectations and as a student I knew how to meet those expectations and how to even go beyond them and then sometimes when it comes to job searching um I get the anxiety because I feel like Maybe I'm not getting those expectations quite right. Maybe I'm, I'm not, I'm not gonna meet that. And 
Um, once I'm in the job, I don't feel as much that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Well, and what you're bringing up for me is this concept of the soul child, which is in the integration point. So as a three, I've become really familiar with my soul child of six, which is that within every three lives an angsty little six. And so as I have become more present to what's actually fueling my motor, this connection with fear is something that I'm really trying to stay open to and to welcome. So much so to the point where I think I said on one of the last podcast episodes that I was exploring, could I be a six? And after, you know, more typing with more um, skilled people, it keeps coming back. You're a three, you're a three, you're a three. But um, this anxiety piece, which I also think is part of self-preservation because it's like that life or death. So as my dominant drive being self-pres and really opening myself up to the soul child energy of 0.6. Um, I just feel like I'm at the stage on my growth where fear is an emotion that I'm working with. And this podcast is a perfect example of it. I mean, there are so many of these episodes where just stepping out here in this way, having opinions, questioning people that I so deeply respect about their type or their stack and just you know, who am I to be, you know, even naming all of this stuff? There's like so much fear associated with that. So just being in relationship to that energy has been really interesting to me. And what I would love to hear is how, what is your relationship to your soul child of 0.4? And have you looked at that at all? Yes. Yes. Thank you. And I want to commend you for for what you're doing with the podcast, because I do think that's really brave and awesome that you're doing it. So Mm, thank um, you. But yeah, for me, um, for sure. And the four has been a really amazing place to open up to. And um, so one thing that I want to share about myself, which I think is also important when we get into uh, talking about the instincts for sure, is that I have a very unique body. Um, so I was born with um, a condition that's called lipodystrophy, and it's a very rare condition. And it, basically what that means is a lack of fat. And so my body developed with a lack of fat, particularly in my extremities, my face, not so much my torso, and there are elements of it that don't totally fit with me. But the point of the point of it is that I came into the world um, with a unique body <laughs> and one that is identifiably unique from the outside, from other people. Um, I also have a hearing impairment, um, so I started wearing hearing aids um, at uh, kindergarten, um, first grade age, and um, but. I always knew then that I was different, so there was no way to avoid feeling like you're different when you are a smaller individual, when you look way thinner than average person, and when you see how small your bones are, all these things. And I wasn't diagnosed also with this um, condition until I was going into high school. So, oh wow! Um, so it's also um, a long journey through childhood to um, see that I'm different, but not know how to explain that, to not know what, why I'm different, and then to also not be a child that got sick very much, not be a child that really had a lot of problems with it, <laughs> but then to have to tell other people that. And so what I would say about the four and going to the soul child um, is that from my earliest age and memories, 
I knew this really innate feeling of who I was um, at my core. And so not anything to do with personality, who I was, very much the core of being and coming from this origin place. And I had, so it's really how I know God. And I would say that, yeah, at a very young age, not, um, I didn't go to church until I was in like second grade. So this is like prior to any, this is not theological. This is not my parents telling me things. This is my own innate understanding of my being. Mm. And that it was connected to something larger yeah. And and I really feel four when I can go to the four and I can learn about the four and the mystery and the connection to the divine and this real innate origin level that is just even almost impossible to put into words. It's just yeah. something that you can experience. Um, I had that from and my parents saw that in me. They were kind of confused. <laughs> Yeah. And and so um, that was of the way that I had that core within me that then when I was presenting myself to the world as this different body and this this body that looks disabled, this body that looks um, like diseased or uh, uh, not okay, or I never felt like I wasn't okay. Yeah. <laughs> I always knew the core of that, that. And just for clarity, is there a completely normal life expectancy? Is there anything that you have to connect with in your future as the aging process? Or it's just that structurally it makes your body look different? It's mostly structural. And there can be things, obviously, a lack of fat is um, can lead to things if you're not careful. I mean, um, diabetes would be a thing. Even like Alzheimer's, you know, there's like tissue and things that you need to have. Fat is important in a lot of things in our body, right? So having a lack of it isn't necessarily great, but um, I am kind of that partial, like I said. I'm not 100% on the whole thing. So a lot of it is just taking care of myself and nutritionally, and there isn't any, like, difference in life expectancy or anything like that. Well, and that brings me back now to self-preservation instinct. Like, you know that you have to eat in a certain way and take care of yourself in a certain way to maximize your body's access to fat. Is that something that is sort of habitual for you, or do you have to be really intentional about it? So this is where I think the self-preservation, yeah, thinking about that as a blind spot becomes kind of interesting, right? Um, And so the best way that I can explain this is to talk about my relationship with my mom. Mm. And so we know we're going to get there at some point when we're talking about our childhood and our development. Um, But my mother is um, type 6, and she is a very much a self-preservation type 6. And... My mother is very aware all the time of all the things that can go wrong and all the things that uh, need to happen to make everything be as safe as possible. And so that's what I grew up with, was having somebody who was always on the lookout and like always (laughs) the step ahead and always, well, you need to make sure you have this and you need to do that and you need to do and as we know, maybe from thinking through some two development, <laughs> um, there's a level where sometimes being told about your needs um, and having to face your own needs is not always something that a two wants to <laughs> respond and what's to. And the object two. relation? Remind me, is the object relation of point two with the mother or the father primarily? 
Mm-hmm. But it's it's with the um, protecting figure, the okay. protective. So, okay. however, what I'm going to say to that is um, that doesn't resonate with me. So, like, if I do it traditionally and through gender and say, well, my father is the protector and then I should have this, like, relationship with him according to this model. I should right. have a relationship with him related to rejection. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I but your mother's the protective figure, it I sounds like. I think it's like, my mother yeah. that was right. the protective figure. Right. And that <laughs> and makes so. sense. A self-pres six, I mean, that is protection through and through. So I love that you're saying that. And I just want to highlight for listeners that don't know what we're talking about, sure. that every single Enneagram point comes to being because of unique object relations that form with either the nurturing figure or the protective figure, or what I think we learned in our class is sometimes the community is actually where the object relation will form. So I'm not going to go into that in this podcast. That's just something that I actually don't think there's a ton of great writing about. I really learned about it in our shift class and I hadn't Uh really come across that in books. So if I get a teacher on board, maybe I'm having the idea now to interview the teacher that gave that uh, talk to us, that I think object relations are so interesting. But let's leave it at your mother was your protective figure, even though classically that's the father. And so her self-preservation, sixness, where I'm just imagining you know, I've got kids, you know, her baby girl has these issues and she's going to go through hell or high water to find probably every doctor, every nutritional advice, every treatment to make sure that you are as safe and healthy as you can possibly be. Was it like that? Yes. (laughs) And not to, I should also say, I am an only child. Ah, so she had nothing else to distract her attention. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, I have four kids and I'm pretty neurotic around like bike helmets, sunscreen, seat belts. I mean, I, you know, definitely get pretty fired up about all those self-pressed things, but there's four of them. And it's like, yeah, you just can't think of all of them all the time. So I can only imagine having that angsty energy directed at you all the time. I'm imagining that was exhausting. So it is, but so she's also the nurturer too. So it's, Ah. it's a nurturing energy, you know, it's nurturing too. She, it's love and she, she cares and she does things for us. And I definitely, from a young age, felt like I had a very different personality than my mom Mm -hmm. in particular, you know, felt this like conflict of, um, I want to spread my wings and fly. Like I want, yeah. I love people. I want to share. I feel this inside of me that I'm a this un, a really unique being that's that's full of love, mm. <laughs> and I just want to love other people and go and put myself out there. I'm an extrovert, yeah. um, and then my mother's also an introvert, <laughs> and then and then have this um, con- conflict where then somebody's kind of saying like, no, but wait, don't do that. Well, wait, what about this? Well. Do you have that? Well, I think you should wear this because it would cover your arms. You know, you don't want to show your arms necessarily or like. And you're probably like, you know what? I've accepted my arms and my body. I mean, when I talk to you, this is actually the very first time I've ever heard about your disability that you've been living with. And I don't even know if that's the right word, the body uniqueness or whatever. Um, And yeah, like I in some ways think that when somebody comes into this world with a challenge that most of us don't face, that I think that actually like supercharges spiritual development. 
because there's stuff that you have to work through at a very young age that I think middle-aged women start working through when we no longer are going to be identifying with the ideal form of beauty. And granted, all women have this all along the way in the lifespan. But when you start to get old, you kind of have to give it up on some level. And you came into this world recognizing, I'm not going to look like the classic American ideal of beauty. And so you really had the opportunity to give that up early. And it sounds like Whenever we're faced with hardship, uh, Rob Bell, who I'm a fan of, says we can have it make us bitter or have it make us better. And it sounds like you don't have a lot of bitter moments and you've really taken that energy and channeled it into how can I be the most fullest expression of myself and how can I connect and support others in this beautiful way? At least that's how I, how I receive you. Thank you. And so this is the thing, Kara, that is so fascinating when you really look at self-development through the Enneagram. Everything has, like, these two sides to them. And there's truth, and there's... So where I'm going with this is, yes, um, that is true. There's such a truth to how I knew myself and how I saw myself and how I believed who I could be in the world and how... But then with that, there's the presentation of that. With that, on the other side of it, what you're saying, too, is I've learned from a very young age how to present myself, though, as being okay, as being uh, good enough, and, and you don't need to be afraid. Like, you can see me, I look different, but don't worry, I'm healthy, I'm, I'm capable, I can do all these things. I, you know, I, when I was little, um, and I'd be with a group of other kids, they always wanted me to play the baby when we'd play house. And I was so furious because I never wanted to be the baby. I wanted to be the mother. <laughs> I wanted to be the teacher. I wanted to be the, the adult one. In the, in, but I was so tiny and, and uh, fragile and things. And I was treated like I was a baby. And I was like, that's not me. I'm not a baby. But so there's like this truth. But then there's this also the development of that presentation of going out into the world as a young child um, all through my growing up and have people stare at you out in public, have people point at you, have people laugh at you, have people do all of these outward things towards you just by the way that you look, or sorry, by the way I look, I'll talk to myself. And then my response being always, you know, lots of different emotions, of course, going through a lot of emotions. I still face that through times, but what I kind of came to was like, like you said, I, I don't want to be a better person because that's not really who I am. And so um, for me, I learned young about the smile, <laughs> about mm-hmm. smiling and showing people I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Smile, show you I'm okay, you know, I'm healthy, I'm good, I'm this. And so what I'm, what I'm getting at, though, is so all of that is true. There's a truth to it. But then there's also what happens when you create an identity yeah. that isn't always true for you. Of course. Like sometimes I'm not okay. Yeah. Sometimes it hurts a lot. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'm not healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I got into the Enneagram, hearing this word shame mm-hmm. as being in the heart center and being something that twos have a particular relationship with. Yeah. I thought, 
Shame. <laughs> that doesn't resonate. That's not. That's not where I fall. I would thought anger. Oh man, yeah. anger. I got the anger going. Like I can go there anytime. Because you can uh, feel your stress arrow to eight, mm-hmm, and those eights yeah. have that easy access to anger. So yeah. And a lot with the wine resentment kind of mm-hmm. thing. Like I get, I get like, hey, you're not doing that. The best way you can do that. Oh, you know that kind of. Thing. But but so shame. Where's that coming in? Mm. So it's through this learning um, to see how there is this level. There's definitely in the core. There's this thing where, for me, it's always been, I had this acceptance of myself, like this innate acceptance that I talked about with that origin level. But I always have had this thing in me where I question if the world is going to accept it Mm, yeah if the world is going to accept me I always feel I when I really look at it it's like there's a rejection that's there that's present before I even go forward like it's already there in the background that there's going to be rejection and it's because when you go out like I said and you're a seeing people staring at you and pointing at you and they don't understand who you are. They're not even, you don't even have a chance to share who you are because you're in public. But I mean, I had to learn like too that those aren't the people who are ever going to know me. So that's why the smile came, right? Like, yeah, I'm, I only have this moment that they're looking at me to show them that that's not the truth. So mm. I'm going to do it with a smile instead of glaring back at them or instead of, yeah. you know, and it's the real people who I'm going to develop a relationship with that matter more, yeah. of course. You know? Well, and I'm just seeing the beautiful integration point of four as I'm even hearing you talk, because when we think about the four, part of your growth, I would imagine is to really become conscious of how you use your smile because twos are perpetually, you know, they're warm and they're relational and they smile to achieve relationship. Whereas fours, you know, John wants to reject even the possibility that there's a sunny four. My um, 14 year old, I think is a four and he gets the feedback that people think he's unhappy or surly or sullen. He's like, Mom, I think I just have a resting bitch face. He's like, and <laughs> I don't really want to smile when there's no reason to smile. And I don't really care if people don't like that my face doesn't look happy. I will smile when I feel happy. And I'm going to have my resting <laughs> bitch face and would like the world to be okay with that when I'm not. I'm like, oh, wow. I used He used to ride that 2-4 arrow. And now that he's in high school and settling more into his identity. I just see more of the four coming out. But of course, we know that all twos and fours ride that arrow. And I think that that's a way that you can decide, is this person a two or a four? If you're debating between those two points, I think the twos are going to be relational. And I think the fours are much more inward. What's going on with me? And if that's not congruent, I'm not showing that to the outside world because it's not authentic. So for you, speaking this way that you're speaking really shows me how much work you've done and the way that you have this consciousness of the role this smile has played for you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, No. And I think that that once again, so truth in it. And then also this level where that that presentation is masking it is a way to defend it is a way to um 
there's a level where in thinking about the the instincts again um so kind of having a little bit of an aversion to the self-preservation just that uh it's kind of i i'm good at i'm i'm actually decent at self-preservation level things because of my upbringing right because i learned how to keep things clean and how to take my vitamins and how to do all these things and 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 i love to cook actually too and things like that so there's some things that are there but for sure it's like i think it's like that rejection feeling again like like a a rejection from my mom which she wasn't intending to be rejection (laughs) rejecting me but as a young growing little child it's like I didn't want to be limited by these self-preservation kind of things because right I'm trying to put out myself as not needing to I'm (laughs) I don't need to be worrying about health and all of these things look I am healthy I am capable I am all of these things and so I want to go explore I want to go be with people and I want to um I want to develop my interests I want to take risks and travel and do things I want to you know I want to get into my studies I want to explore the world and I want to do it in a way that I'm um involving with involved with people and and self and social justice and all these things so a lot of times that self-preservation instinct it does get pushed to the bottom yeah the pile of things because it's like it feels too confining well and i'm thinking of it too also the core structure is to deny their own needs and be like hey i'm the person that helps you I don't need you to help me. And so I could totally see how coming into this world as a person that might look like they need more support when that's not actually your direct experience of yourself, there's going to be even more stepping into the personality of like, oh yeah, like let's put that aside because that might highlight something that's just not my reality. Right. Yeah. So I'd love to talk about the sexual instinct because we've touched on social and we've touched on self-pres. And I'm also imagining that when you have a body that looks different, that your sexual journey may look different than somebody who has more quote unquote traditional normal form. So if you don't mind speaking about what your experience of A, the relationship in a sexual intimacy way that you've experienced that as you've grown up, as well as how do you experience your sexual instinct right now? I think that would be really interesting to hear. Yes, I think that this is a key point to our conversation too. And it's something that listening to your other podcast episodes has really had me thinking this week. So um, I think that it's interesting to look at the I think the sexual instinct is really complex because I think it's um I think it's treated on the surface like it's not very complex like it's kind of obvious it has to do with physical sexual intimacy yeah I think that the sexual instinct is actually more and a lot more complex than sometimes people realize I think on the surface it looks like it's about you know sexual um uh, romantic physical um kind of this needing for attraction and so I think there is that I think that you know Russ Hudson um, said something about sexual instinct being the energy of creation and creativity Mm -hmm. 
And I think there's an impulse there that has to do with with evolution, with with moving things forward, with growth, with potential, and it has to do with um, um, moving past boundaries, you know, um, moving beyond um, kind of the the energy that pushes things forward in development in our world and in ourselves, um, and and so you can see how that comes into play then with like self preservation, which would be like safety oriented and keeping things kind of unstructured structures and keeping boundaries on things so I think the sexual instinct is that that energy that pushes us out of that and so I see it I've seen a lot more that when Russ was talking through that in our course I felt like I understood that a lot for myself Mm -hmm. um I have lived abroad I have studied abroad I went to so I went to England to get a, a master's degree. Um, I um, just moving there without knowing anybody. I've traveled. I've lived in Chicago and the biggest city. I've lived in Appalachia and the teeny tiny rural Appalachia. I've I've um, I love to explore. I love travel. I love trying new things, trying um, new experiences, meeting new people. Um, and so for me, and, and learning, and growing and learning. And so there's a lot of that energy to me that I feel like comes out of the sexual. It's this kind of always evolving, always changing, always being ready for the next thing that's going to move things forward. So that so exploration that- and edge piece, which is one of those zones in the sexual instinct, uh-huh. absolutely is manifesting for you through like a certain level of intensity and you know obviously this spiritual quest that you talked about and I can just tell I've always seen this level of vitality and you know you're really referencing like some spontaneity and this you know little bit of sizzle that you've got and I sense that you really can inspire and you really do influence so all of these things within the sexual instinct I can see how you have easy access to that whereas self-prez is like the annoying one. You're like the, ugh, why do I have to think about that? And, you know, it's just, there's so much more juice for you, it seems like in the social and the sexual, and yet being raised by a self-pressed six mom, it's almost like when that may be overdone, maybe we sort of push that into our shadow a little bit. It's like, ugh, I want to almost turn away from that. Yeah, and almost also, like, why did I need to explore the self-preservation instinct a lot when I had somebody who was fulfilling all of that for me? Absolutely. <laughs> like, if somebody's co- coordinating my life, yeah. um, and why would I have needed to explore that as a child? I, I yeah. need to do that. So, now, um, why are you social dominant? Like, how has, like, I want to now, I've heard about how many things are great about Maggie. I want to hear about some of your neuroses now. Like, where do you struggle? Like, you know, we sometimes say that in our dominant and in our blind, we sometimes struggle. But I guess the one thing that I would like to also hear is how do you experience those other aspects of the sexual, which we call, you know, attraction and attracting others and this merging in a one-to-one relationship? So comment on those first. Sure. So um, that's what's really got me thinking. So so as I'm thinking, okay, all these other, these elements of that I do resonate with, with the sexual, then I'm thinking, but wait, am I a sexual being? Like, am I somebody who also 
is on the romantic, is on the side of physical intimacy, and, and this is where I can be real vulnerable, I have not had any kind of sexual, physical, romantic relationship ever in mm-hmm. my 37 years of life. Yeah. <laughs> and so then can I be that then? Can I have yeah. that as a secondary um, instinct even? Um, yeah. I think, could it, could someone have that as their dominant instinct? Could they be a sexual being who has never had actual sex with somebody? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm like, um, I am a sexual being, though. Right. Like, you feel I it. have you that in me, and I, and I also have always had attraction and always a desire Mm -hmm. Um, and always a passion within me to have that kind of merging relationship with another person. Yeah. Um, so just because that hasn't happened in my life, does that, you know, does that, I mean, it makes me wonder if you're dominant, if you could be sexual dominant. And that is such an interesting question that I would love to bring to somebody like John, who I think when we hear him talk about the sexual instinct. He does talk about it a lot in terms of chemistry and in terms of that sexual connection. And I think I've heard him talk less. Like, honestly, I can't remember hearing him talk about somebody who presents to the world with a disability where it's only natural that developing sexual relationships is going to be more challenging. So I would almost imagine that if you come into the world knowing that there's something about your form that provides an extra barrier, and yet you feel that energy inside of you, that it could be dominant. So why do you put social as dominant instead of sexual? Yeah, because I think it goes to motivation. And so um, with what you're saying, I think attraction is really a key piece of my life. because, Because think about it this way. I don't have any choice but to present this body to the world. Right. And this body is constantly getting looked at. Yeah. People who have a more oh, typical yeah. body, people who have a more typical body can go about life and you're just another person walking around. Right. Right. When you're a person who has a different body, your body is constantly looked at. Your body yeah. becomes something that's actually a lot that's a really a big part of your presentation yeah. in life. And so I don't think there's any way for me to avoid attraction being something that was a pivotal piece and and who I am. And we um, talk about that as both attraction and repelling. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. as you're showing in up into the world, I'm imagining that are, there are people that are very curious about why your body looks this way and are drawn in and then mm-hmm. also learn your personality and, you know, feel this really intense connection. And as you referenced early, you've also gotten stares or pointed at or, you know, signals that there's a repelling happening. So that's really interesting. I never thought about how it could present that way. Sure, sure. And yeah, that gaze, I think the gaze is, uh, so, um, but then like we're saying, um, where does the social come in to play as the dominant? Well, I think it goes to motivation. So, so when I'm seeking merging, when I'm seeking maybe how the sexual instinct could really play out for me, I'm, I'm still thinking of it and wanting it to be in a way that will lead to greater connection okay. <laughs> to other people. And so for me, yeah, experiencing sex would be great. Mm-hmm. I would desire to experience sex. I have no, no mm-hmm. question to say that. However, 
I would still, to me, I would still feel like the sex itself would be like that energy, I think, would be secondary to what that energy and the sex would bring, okay. which would be to have greater connection yeah. with a person. And that would always be for foremost and my desiring would be that and and I don't so I think that that's why actually I feel like it's not a dominant instinct for me the sexual because it's really not an energy that I feel like I have to have like all the time or I need it right now or I have to experience it in that level it's and so um yeah I think the I think it's important with the instincts that it kind of always go back to the motivation because yeah. I can even see, I'll just tell you this, I can see a motivation, social instinct motivation in myself in a self-pres kind of setting. So when I lived with other people, I was very, so I lived with, at one time in England, I lived with 10 other people in a house, um, a house from 1847, by the way, <laughs> and in England. And there was the kitchen was a pit, like constantly a pit. And so here comes in one <laughs> wing, and here comes in what looks to be very much self-preservation, which in some ways it is. got to have things be clean, let's clean, let's take care of things, let's do all this. But when I really look at the motivation, what was behind me wanting the kitchen to be clean and everything. It was wanting everybody to participate. Yeah. And because there's a social contract, because yeah. it's, because to me, the more important thing was, this is not a unifying us to be helpful to one another, to be a connective yeah. to one another. It's not the fact that the kitchen was so dirty. That was the biggest totally problem. Makes sense. You know? yeah. So I, I think that. it's like, there's always this like underlying, your dominant steeps into like, yeah. kind of your motivation level. Well, and I want to name this too, that if you have um, a body that is different than other bodies that in some ways can block certain connections that you might want to have, it also makes sense to me that there could be an element of body blindness, which we know anybody who is self-press blind. I, and I was thinking about this even in terms of sex. So when we talk about a sexual instinct being like first or second, Sometimes I hear people say, oh, I have such a great sex life, so I know that my I couldn't be sexual blind, which I know that John has spoken a lot about how self-preservation and social sex can lead to very sexually active people. And, um, you know, specifically if self-preservation is higher in the stack, people are pursuing sexual experiences more because of the body-based pleasure that not doesn't necessarily have to do with the social bond and isn't necessarily this merging transcendent different type of one-to-one experience than you have with sex that is more motivated by self-pres or social reasons. Does that make sense? Definitely. Yeah. And so, you know, you might be body blind, which goes along with a little bit more of being self-preservation blind, if you're not using your body or your physical form to actually get you what you want in life, I'm sensing that you're using your personality and your energy, which would be the sexual energy to actually get you what you, to get your instinctual needs met. And the body is something that 
hasn't proven to be your go-to strategy as this will get me what I want. It's more something I've got to take care of so that I can leverage my other energies. Is that resonating? Yes, but like I said, I don't think I can ever be body blind. Right, exactly. Because it's it's out there and it's going to be scrutinized. Absolutely. And so, so what does a two do? What does a person do then who doesn't want to be perceived as the neat? You go, you you do use your body, but you use it in a way to show, like with the smile again, with yes. the way I dress, with with um, pointing to other people and the way they dress and being very complimentary and flattering them and saying, um, "Wow, Kara, man, I love that necklace you're wearing. That's so pretty." Uh-huh. And then you can say to me, "Oh, thanks, Maggie." And then you can say, "Oh, and I like your sweater." And like you say, yeah. so like, I mean, it's like there's a lot of that, and it's. And so it is a mix of like the sexual and the so- and the social. I think, yeah. Um, the self-pres, yeah. I think it's um, so. Uh, one thing that I wanted to make sure to say with this, with the self-pres, though, because I think so. Um, you asked also about the the the, sex, the social and and so where that can be um, problematic, where I have issues with it, and so for sure, I think that. That looks pretty traditional to me, the way that you would think of a self of a social um, dominant person having some issues. Um, I think I can. Um, it, it corresponds a lot with the shame. It corresponds a lot with um, with rejection, and so sometimes I take things sensitively with um, people that I'm in relationship with because I'm constantly seeing the social dynamic and I'm constantly thinking about it and and okay I contacted this person and then I haven't heard from them though and then I contacted them again in a different way and this person's supposed to be one of my best friends and they're I'm not hearing from them or like I'm always the one reaching out to them and they're not reaching out to me yeah. and and so like definitely a lo- uh, area where the fixation happen a lot um, yeah. is within this within that social zone but I did want to point out one more thing about the, the self-prize which is that I've learned I'm learning a lot about how to integrate more self-prize and I've had a really really interesting three months um pretty much when the right after our course ended I went into an experience uh, with some major health issues. So the last three months of my life, I've had um, some really major health issues, um, including um, being diagnosed with cancer, mm-hmm. um, having a cancerous tumor. And um, I've had all these tests run. I've had um, every kind of thing you can think of. I've had a blood transfusion. I've had a colonoscopy. I've had endoscopies. I've had um, two surgeries now in these past three months. Um, wow. And yeah. And so with cancer, a cancerous tumor, um, there's no way for that not to shift your of priorities course. and yeah. also your pers- your perspective. Can I check in, Maggie? Um, um, how is your yeah. how is your prognosis with all of this? I know that we're all our hearts are going out and just really wondering, like, where what what is your journey going to look like with this over the next year or two? Yeah, so I'm extremely fortunate that the tumor was um, it was a rare tumor, but it was spon- uh, spontaneous um, and it was in my stomach, um, and 
I just had to have a surgery to remove it. It hadn't metastasized, which is a type of tumor that can definitely metastasize. But because of something else that I went to the emergency room for, that's how they found the tumor. And they were able to find it soon enough. So I went from being having cancer to not having cancer in like a month. Wow. Wow. Um, And then the other surgery I had was for something else. And so it was just all this like stuff at one time that happened. Um, So I'm really fortunate that uh, there isn't any other treatment that will be needed. Yeah. Um, Stuff to monitor, continue monitoring. But yeah. And so, but um, what I wanted to just say with that though was that it's definitely been an experience for me and really really getting into understanding, you know, how important it is to take care of my body. And, but also I think more importantly, because I think I I always know to take care of my body because that's what installed in me. So I don't, so yes, okay, taking care of my body. So there's even more I can do, right? But I think the bigger thing is the understanding of how finite, (laughs) um, how fragile, how impermanent, our bodies and our lives really are Mm. and that that's okay to come to that recognition and to that's the humility right like that's the piece for the two that is like so hard sometimes so here I've grown and developed and this presentation always I even would say even with this when these health stuff happened I'm saying I'm telling people I've never stayed overnight in a hospital until now I've never had any problems until now I've always been healthy until now a lot of pride about that yeah 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 and so it's like I'm telling that story right that narrative still that I'm okay my body's okay I'm healthy I'm okay and it's this realization that we're not okay like we have we we are um with every single breath we are um bringing in life Mm -hmm. and we are on the edge of death with every breath we take and so for me that's been like a humongous just um, just so pivotal uh, for me in this point in my life and I really feel that if I hadn't been doing the self-inquiry and the the self work that I've done over the last year and using the Enneagram and um, especially practices um, for presence and practices for understanding holy ideas um, and the reality of existence, um, then it could have been a lot harder three months than it even was. But Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm so deeply touched with your share, Maggie. This uh, hearing your story has really been a contribution to people understanding this. And yeah, if there are other listeners out there that have unique stories like Maggie, I would just love you to contact us and step forth because, of course, we all have our unique challenges. And I think that hearing about these is what I'm really wanting to bring forth in this. So as we close for today, I just really want to express gratitude and just name how deeply touched my heart is with all of the authenticity and vulnerability that you've brought forth. And I'm just ending this with so much inspiration and love. And I just really feel that high side of two shining through in this moment. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you for giving a platform so that we can have these conversations. And uh, I think you're just the perfect person to lead this. So thank you. Mm, Thank you, Maggie. If you enjoyed this, 
You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at contact at enneagramblindspots.com. I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice while Essence MD, including typing services, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Feel free to call my office at 847-850-8185 to schedule a free consultation.